I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> you know, one of the most popular shows on television in the last 10 years has been a sitcom called Everybody Loves Raymond. But I have no idea why. Okay? Uh, I know it's high in the ratings, I know it's still on in reruns, and a lot of people like it, but the whole show is predicated on the dysfunction of a family. I mean, every, every show, every, every sub-theme, anything at all, is all centered around the strained and even broken relationships between parents and their kids, between siblings, between husbands and wives. And I'm not going to say that it's not ever funny, that there's not some good lines or some good situations. Uh, it, it, certainly there is humor there. But the, the overriding emphasis that what is funny is the, the de depravity that is so evident in our families today, frankly, it tends to be like nails on the chalkboard of my soul after a while because I know that's not the way it's supposed to be. It, it's, it's not supposed to be that way. But it's funny to many people because that's exactly the way it is. We live in a world full of broken relationships. We live in a world full of, of disparity between husbands and wives and of, and of tension among families. And the reason why I think that so many of those relationships are broken is because there is a more fundamental, more, a more primary relationship that is not as it should be, and that is our relationship to God. And anytime our relationship to God is strained or is broken, it's going to mean that all the other relationships that we have are going to be strained or broken. If you remember back to our very first message in this series about the God who saves, you will know that the reason we have a strained and broken relationship with God is because of sin. It's, it's condemnation from God because of our rebellion against Him. And so the, the strained and broken relationship we have with God is ultimately our fault. And part of the judgment, part of the, the condemnation that we have received because of our sin is an alienation from God. One of the things that as you kind of lay in bed at nights and you've prepared messages and you begin, you know, you, at least this is pastors anyway. <laughs> if you prepare messages, then you understand. If not, then, you know, bear, bear with me here. But one of the things you just kind of lay about and you think, what was that like? What was that like? We're told that Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. What would that have been like? I don't know. I'll look forward to it one day. But God says that that can't happen anymore because of sin. Our, our relationship is, is not going to be like that anymore. Because now you stand condemned, justfully so, because of your sin. And so God was forced to remove Adam and Eve from his presence in the garden. And the result is that now all of humanity has been alienated from God. Even those of us that are, that are saved from our sins, that, that have a relationship restored, that are adopted as His children, we don't walk with God in the cool of the day anymore. Something fundamentally has been broken in the relationship between God and all of humanity. We are more than just alienated from Him. We are His enemies. If God is the sovereign King, we are the insurrectionists. We refuse to submit to His Lordship. 
and we refuse to partake of the provision he has given to us. We, re we, re we renounce him as Lord and seek to live lives our own way in rebellion against him. That's what sin is all about. And as Christians, we sometimes throw out this phrase, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Now, there's some truth in that, but taken as an absolute statement, it is not true. In fact, it's not even a Christian statement. The first person to make that statement was a disenfranchised Hindu named Gandhi. He's the one who first said, God hates sin but loves the sinner. Now, why would he have said that? Well, he said that because he didn't understand Christianity. Because Christianity does not teach that as an absolute statement. The Bible does teach. It is true that God hates sin. But it's not true that God only has love for sinners. It's just not true. In just the first 50 Psalms, we were told no less than 14 times, God hates sinners. Psalm 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Not you hate all evil. You, not, you don't hate all the evil deeds. You hate all evildoers. We don't hear that very much, do we? Psalm 11, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. I thought about that a lot this week as I was preparing because we just heard a speaker not long ago, some of us, who said that he loves a good fight. And here God says he hates those who love violence. God hates sin, but what are people but sinners? Since the fall of man, to be human is to be a sinner. It's to be sinful. Nevertheless, the, the reality is God is not like us. God is not like us in that He can do what we cannot do. He can both hate the sinner and at the same time love the sinner. He can both hate the sinner and love the sinner. In fact, this is exactly what, what Paul says God did in Romans 5. He says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We had not already been reconciled. We had not already been adopted as his, as his children. We still stood as children of wrath under His condemnation, Him hating us for our sin, and yet He loved us enough to send Christ to die for us. This is the glory of our God, who can both love and hate sinners. God hates sinners, but in His love for them, He also worked to redeem them from their sin. And this is the great work of salvation that we have been looking at the last several weeks. Specifically, We've been looking at what God did for sinners in the cross. The first thing we saw was the language of temple sacrifice and that Christ was our propitiation. That is, He was the sacrifice that fully satisfied God's wrath against our sin. Christ's death on the cross provides a salvation from God's just judgment for our rebellion against Him. Then we saw Christ has also secured our redemption, the language of the marketplace. Through the cross of Christ, our ransom was paid that we might be set free from sin. We are no longer bound in slavery and in chains to the power and guilt of sin in our lives, but as Christians we have been set free so that we can pursue righteousness to God's glory. More than that, last week we saw that through the death of Christ on the cross we have received justification. That is, in Christ we have a right legal standing before God. His death not only allowed us to receive forgiveness for our sins, but His life also provides to us a righteousness that is counted towards us so that we can stand faultless before God's, uh, God's throne, both forgiven and holy. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. 
And this morning we come to the last of those main metaphors. The New Testament uses to describe what Christ achieved on the cross, and it is the language of relationships. We have been reconciled to God in Christ. The once fundamentally broken relationship has now been repaired through the work of Christ on the cross. We want to see how God has done this and what it means for our lives today as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I would encourage you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 18. Paul says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. May God bless the reading of His Word. From this, these few verses we see Paul telling us three things about reconciliation, three truths that we need to understand for our own lives this morning. First, God takes the initiative in reconciliation. God takes the initiative in reconciliation. In his commentary on this passage, Phil Riken uh, explains this, that, quote, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the phrase at one, two words, A-T space O-N-E, at one, was used as early as 1300 to describe two people who have been brought into a state of unity or harmony after a period of disagreement. Though formerly they were estranged, now they were at one accord. And this expression of at-oneness appeared in many of the, the early English translations of the Bible. The Geneva Bible of 1527 translates verse 20 as this, We pray you in Christ's stead that ye be at one with God. Or, as it's spelled in that verse as one word, that ye be atone with God. Eventually that phrase at one began to be used as one word, atone, and over time it began to be used as a verb and gave rise to lots of other related words like the atone maker, the atone maker, one who makes peace between two arguing or warring groups. Thus to make atonement was the action of making at one after discord or strife. You say, what does that have to do with reconciliation? Well, the truth of the matter is, when we speak of the atonement as Christians, we are fundamentally speaking about God being reconciled to sinful people. That's our fundamental message to the world. That's what the atonement is all about. A God who stands in just, uh, righteous anger at sinners coming together to be friends with them again and no longer enemies. When it comes to human relationships, when it comes to large corporations, the, the, the offending party, the one who has done the grievous error is usually the one who, who takes the initiative in repairing the damage. So for instance, you've got two friends. And one, pours, one, one friend at one point loses his anger and says very ugly things. The responsibility lies on that friend to go and say, I'm sorry for what I said. I was angry. It was sinful. I didn't handle myself well. Will, will you please forgive me? Can we be reconciled together? 
if, if there's someone who is uh, in the larger business world, if he's, if he's done something, you know, he has to perhaps pay a fine or something, but, but he's the one who goes and says, I'm sorry for what I did. I want the relationship to be restored. That's the way it's supposed to work. And as sinful people, we're the ones who have damaged the relationship between us and God. God didn't do anything to us. God didn't offend us in any way. God did not sin against us. We have sinned against God. We are the offending party. We are the ones that are supposed to be going to God seeking reconciliation. But we don't do that. In fact, it's the opposite from what we would typically see. In verse 18, Paul says, All of this, all of this reconciliation is from God. Everything involved in our reconciliation not only comes from God, it begins with God. God is the one who takes the initiative in our reconciliation. Just look at the grammar of the text. God reconciled us to himself. Eight verbs in this text all have God as the subject. God is the one doing the action. Several times, God reconciles. Then God gives. God does not count sin. God entrusts His message. God is making His appeal. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin. And so it's with good reason that the New English Bible translates verse 18 by saying, From first to last, this has been the work of God. And we see this throughout the Bible, don't we? God is the originator of our salvation. He is the one who makes the first move. He is the one who provides everything we need to be saved, even when we can't provide it for ourselves. When we understand the reality of God's mercy and grace in initiating our reconciliation, we are left believing what what William Temple once wrote. All is of God. The, one, the only thing of my very own which I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. Isn't that the truth of the, of the matter? When it comes to our salvation, when it comes to, to us being reconciled to God, the only thing that I bring to the table is sin that needs to be dealt with. That's it. God does everything else. It's sad to say that today we live in a society, even among people that profess the name of Christ, we live in a society where the disillusion of marriage is not uncommon. In fact, it's the opposite. It's, it's commonplace. And more sadly than that, it's common because of infidelity, of someone cheating on their spouse. And it doesn't surprise me ever when the person who has done the cheating goes to the other and begs forgiveness. I mean, that, that seems like the appropriate thing to do. But what does astonish me is when the person who has been sinned against, the person who's literally had their heart ripped out of their chest and handed to them on the plate, when they're the ones that go to the, to the unfaithful spouse and say, let's be reconciled. Let's make the marriage work. That just blows my mind away. It shouldn't. I mean, we live in an odd society when the sin doesn't surprise us, but, but the right attitude does. That, that's a bad place to be in. But that's the situation in which we find ourselves. And if, if that is amazing, to me at least, how much, more, how much more amazing is it for God? God, the one who is supreme, the one who is the all-glorious creator of all things, the one who finds himself with sinful human creatures rebelling against him. How more amazing is it that he should be the one seeking reconciliation, even when we're not? How amazing is it that that he should work to restore the relationship with humanity while we are still in rebellion against him? 
You know, it's not as if we reach a place in our life where we say, okay, God, I'm sorry. Is there anything you can do to help out here? As, 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 the, as the human race, we've decided we want to repent before you. That doesn't work. It's never happened, and it will never happen. And it says we are, we are actively rebelling against God. We are actively, as it were, thumbing our nose at him and perhaps other digits that we shouldn't up in his face. And what does he do? He sends Christ to die for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the amazing, the amazingly great cost with which God achieves our reconciliation to him. In God taking the initiative, he offers Christ as the means of our reconciliation. This is the second thing we want to see this morning. God offers Christ as the means or as the basis for reconciliation. Paul says all this is from God and through Christ he reconciled us to himself. In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Paul is clear that it was in Christ that God brought about the restoration of fellowship that for sinners. He, he fixed the broken relationship humanity has with himself through Christ, specifically through the cross. In verse 21 we read, For our sakes... He made him, that is God made Christ, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I would say if you only learn one verse in the Bible, that should be the one that you learn. That should be the one that you learn. Because this verse gives us a description of the cross that is distilled down to its very essence. Here we have the great exchange which brings us peace with God. Paul says, first, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is a, that's powerful, powerful language. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what does it mean? What, what does it mean that he who knew no sin became sin for us? Well, first, let, let me say what it does not mean. Okay? Um, you know, there's lots of bad things you can do with the internet, but, but I love all the good things you can do with it. And I can plug this verse in and get half a million hits on what people are saying about this verse. And a lot of stuff out there was good, but there was also a lot of stuff out there that was, that was not very good. In fact, I found it was interesting that there seemed to be a correlation between those people that would teach a false gospel of prosperity. Not a gospel of, of ultimately of salvation, but a gospel that, that God wants you healthy, happy, and wise, or healthy, happy, and wealthy. They fumble the verse badly. One guy in particular, and I don't like calling out people that may be brothers, but in my opinion, clearly a false prophet, Ken Copeland. We've seen him on television. Um, he says, this verse teaches, and he goes to the rest of the Bible to supposedly support it, this verse teaches that on the cross, Jesus actually became a sinner. That Jesus' soul actually became sinful. That's wrong, in case you didn't know that, okay? I mean, more than wrong, that is blasphemy of the first degree, I believe. For the Bible maintains over and over again, Jesus never sinned. That He was always holy and righteous, both in His deity and in His humanity. And Peter can say that we were ransomed by the blood of Christ, and that His blood was precious like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Christ was not only holy as he went to the cross, but he remained holy as he hung on the cross. So what does it mean then that Christ became sin? It means that God considered him. He counted him to be sin for us. 
our sinfulness was imputed to Christ. We've seen this before, haven't we? In famous passages like Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many. It doesn't say that, that, he, that he took upon their sins as his own, that he became a sinner. It says that he carried the load, the burden of their sins for them. Both, figurative, both figuratively and in a real judicial sense before God, on the, cry, on the cross, Christ became the very embodiment and symbol of our wickedness. When God looked upon him on the cross, he looked upon him as if he were sin. So as Christ hung on the cross, what exactly did God see? He saw all the sins of everyone who would ever look to God in faith, trusting Him in salvation. So as the, as the holy and fully righteous Son of God hung on the cross and God looked at Him, here is what He saw. He saw Adam's first rebellion. He saw Noah's drunkenness. He saw Abraham's lies about Sarah. He saw Moses' murder of an Egyptian. He saw Aaron's idolatry. He saw Rahab's prostitution. He saw Samson's philandering. He saw David's adultery. He saw Peter's profane cursing of God's name and denial of Christ. He saw Paul's unholy zeal in, persecu in the persecution and murder of Christians. And on and on and on down to our sins today. He saw drug abuse, raging alcoholism, pedophilia, wife beating, commurders of genocide and adultery. He saw the lynching of black men. He saw gluttony, lust, and pride. That's what he saw when he saw Christ on the cross. Christ who became sin for us. And in seeing that sin, the Bible says, God poured out the fullness of his wrath and judgment on sin. That was the high cost of our peace with God. This is what it took for us to be reconciled to God. But God wasn't done. God wasn't done. What we see here is a double imputation. Our sin imputed to Christ and His righteousness imputed to us. For our sin He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Just as God imputed to Him all that was sinful in us, so to us He imputed all that was righteous in Him. Does it mean just as Christ did not become sinful because of our sins, it does not mean that we become righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. We do, but that's later. That's later. That's come back in two weeks, and that's what we talk about. But here God says the righteousness that belongs to Christ is now counted as if it were our own. A righteousness that is not our own is counted as our own. So when we stand before God, when we stand before God in eternity, we don't come before Him saying, look at all the things that I have done. Look, look at all of my goodness, God. Look, look at all of the righteousness that I have accumulated over my, year, my years as a Christian. 
Look at all the times, look at all the money I've given, look at all the times I've ministered in your name. We don't do that. When we stand before God in eternity and He looks at us, we say like the hymn writer, it's not the labor of my hands that can fulfill the law's demands. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. God says, why are you here? I don't know. It's your grace, God. Because you saw fit to look on your son and see my sin. To pour out your wrath upon him. And when I placed my faith in him, you saw fit by your grace to count his righteousness as my own. That's the only reason I'm here, God. God takes the initiative in reconciliation. He offers Christ as the basis for reconciliation. And the result is God sends His people as ambassadors of reconciliation. The implications of reconciliation are staggering for our lives. Being reconciled to God means that forever we will be God's friend and not His enemy. It means we are at peace with God through His Son Christ, even in the midst of our own sinfulness and the most difficult circumstances that life can throw at us. It means we have access to God through prayer, allowing us to draw near to Him by faith and having assurance that we will receive the grace that we need to live lives of joyful obedience to Him. But being reconciled to God also means we have a new focus in life. Our desire is not just to sit back and bask in the glory of our own reconciliation to Him, but to work hard at bringing that same reconciliation to those that do not know it. Of taking that same message of peace with God that we ourselves have believed in to those who have not yet heard it or have not yet believed what they have heard. Paul says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was counting the excuse me, was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul says that those of us who have experienced reconciliation with God, those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, we are now called into service as ambassadors for our Savior. And this word ambassador has, has, has largely retained the same meaning so that when we speak of ambassadors now, it's for the most part the same kind of thing that Paul had in his mind when he used the word. John MacArthur explains it like this. Ambassador was a title possessed by someone who represented his government. It was a term of great dignity. To scorn an ambassador or to mistreat an ambassador would be to scorn and mistreat the government he represented or the monarch he represented. To send the ambassador away is de facto to break the relationship with the government or with the monarch he represents. An ambassador speaks wholly for his king or government. He is the mouthpiece of his sovereign. Therefore, he never utters his own thoughts. He never makes private personal offers. He doesn't give personal promises. He doesn't make personal demands. He represents his sovereign. It is not our own dignity that lends weight to our ambassadorship. It is the dignity of the one we represent. And we are ambassadors of Christ. Don't let the importance of what Paul is saying here be lost on you. 
as ambassadors of Christ, we represent God. Everything He is about, we are to be about. His message should be our message. It is not our job as ambassadors to write our own message. It's not, it's not our job as ambassadors to write a new procedure and policy for the government that we represent. As our job as ambassadors, it is simply this and this alone to proclaim the message we have been given and told to proclaim. This is why Paul says we have been entrusted with the message. If you entrust something to someone, you expect them to take care of it, don't you? And why has he done that? He says we are ambassadors for Christ because God is making his appeal through us. That is staggering, friends. Do you understand what he is saying there? Do you understand the importance of this? We must get the gospel right. We must understand the cross because we are the ones who are giving it to a lost world. God never stands from the heavens and says, John Bufkin, trust in Christ for salvation. Whoa, man, I, I, I would do it. I would do it in a heart and say, yes, sure, yeah, I'll do whatever you want. He doesn't, does, he doesn't do that, though, does he? What does he do? He sends some VBS worker to come and be put in my life and to proclaim the gospel to me. And in proclaiming God's message to me, God himself makes the appeal through her words. So understand, friends, anyone who will ever be saved is going to be saved because God is going to use the gospel message one of his ambassadors proclaims to them. God doesn't just zap people into salvation. God is a God who, though sovereign, uses means to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And so the pastor is an ambassador for Christ, absolutely. But guess what? So are you sitting in the pews. So is, so is the deacons, the nursery workers. Are, I'm so thankful we have one new sound guy that's back there every week doing a good job. All of us who claim the name of Christ, who claim to have been reconciled by God, are now called to take that message of reconciliation to people who still stand in broken relationship with God. And if we don't do that, the relationship is not going to be repaired. They will remain dead in their sins. Once many years ago, the Puritan pastor George Berber was visiting the city of Warwick in England to preach in one of the churches that were there that had no pastor. The local magistrates found out that a pastor was coming to preach and they sent a messenger along to say, will you please come, but before Sunday, please come today to the city, to the, to the center of the city. We are about to hang three men. And as the pastor, we would like you to read scripture and pray before the proceedings. So Pastor Berder went to the city and there he found three men that were to be hanged. Two were burglars and one was a forger who had made counterfeit coins. The pastor began to read the great passages of the gospel, of God's desire to, to save sinners, and he prayed. Then the ropes were put around these men's necks as they were led up to stand on the ladders on the scaffold. The executioner stepped away, and all that was left were those, these three men standing on ladders with nooses around their necks, about to be hanged for their crimes. They each began to give some last words and it said that the forger made his last speech and said, I never killed anybody and I never hurt anybody. I hope the Lord will have mercy upon me. When Berter heard this, he was struck to his core. Here was a man who was about to step into eternity and he was talking like some Pharisee about his own good works. 
With great urgency, Berter stepped out from among the crowd and shouted out to this forger, Please, sir, don't trust in your own righteousness. Look to Christ. The ladder was kicked out and the man was dead. One minute, he's alive. And the next, he is gone. And loved ones, I tell you, there are men all around us like that forger. There are men and women and children all around us with illnesses like cancer and heart disease and people who are on their way because of divine appointments with terrible accidents from which they will never recover. And the question for us is, are we living with the same kind of urgency that Berger found himself? Do we look out to those people who are on the very edge of eternity and we think they are still trusting in their own good works? They have not yet understood or perhaps even heard for the first time the message that God is the one who does the reconciling, not us. Sometimes we think we have time. Sometimes we think we have time and the reality is we don't. We don't have the time that we think that we have. And yet God has entrusted us. He has entrusted us with that message of reconciliation. He has called us to be ambassadors for Him. And if we are scorned, we understand they're just scorning our God. If they're refusing to hear, it's not us, it's God they are refusing to hear. Nevertheless, we are called with the responsibility and the privilege to go and to be the means by which God reconciles himself to sinners. Paul says all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This morning you may be here, you may be a lifelong churchgoer and not be reconciled to God. I implore you as Paul did. Be reconciled to God. That is to say, don't attempt to reconcile yourself to Him. Don't attempt to stand in your own, your own goodness or because of what you've done or because of your own penitent spirit and say, somehow it's going to make me right with God. No, just trust in what God has done for you. Allow God to reconcile you to Himself through Christ. And loved ones, brothers and sisters who are here, who have been reconciled, consider how are you living as an ambassador? Are you, are you taking this presage, this precious thing that you have been entrusted with, this message of reconciliation, and, are you, and are, you, are you doing what God wants you to do with it? Is He making His appeal through you? The, 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 the reality, the stark, no gray, black and white reality is, if you are not, then you are out of God's will and living in sin. Because it is God's will that you be the means by which He reconciles sinners to Himself. In just a minute, we're going to sing a very a very short, very powerful and specific song of response to the message we have heard this morning. And, and I would just encourage you now to respond to whatever God is calling you to do. Perhaps to, to confess the sin of not sharing Christ. Perhaps the, to come to Him for the first time. Whatever it is, you do it. 
And if you want someone to pray with you, if you want someone to offer you counsel, then I will be down at the front as we sing. Father, we are thankful for this ministry of reconciliation. We are thankful for all that you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we pray that there would be an urgency and a brokenness that comes in knowing the great cost with which we have been made right with you. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our lives, calling us to, to respond with faith in Christ, both for the living of the Christian life as well as to those who have never heard him coming and finding reconciliation for the first time. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand as we